This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Top Gun Maverick, the legacy sequel to the 1986 movie Top Gun, has soared at the box office since its Memorial Day weekend opening. It's made more than $550 million and counting. People might just be going to see Tom Cruise in action, but there also might be something more going on here. The first Top Gun is an iconic piece of pop culture, a product of its times, a hot movie that came out at the coldest point of the Cold War. This Top Gun... It's also a product of its time, which is a weirder one, a more asymmetrical one, at least for geopolitics. And with us to discuss this is CQ Roll Call's editor-at-large, John T. Bennett. Hello, John. Hello, Jason. So let's start by me trying to embarrass you and talk about how you were like a little kid with this movie coming out. It was all you could talk about for like a week. Uh, you must have bought your tickets for it uh, way ahead of time. Uh, why? What? Why does it mean? Why did this seeing this movie uh, in the original Top Gun? What does it mean to you? Well, I didn't buy uh, didn't buy the tickets uh, quite that much in advance. I uh, I waited until you know the full weekend plan was. Uh, was being devised, but um, as soon as I could, yeah, <laughs> we got our tickets. Um, you know, I think this was uh, the reason, uh, one of the big reasons I think this, I was waiting on this for so long, 36 years, uh, and I'll date myself here, unless my memory and that of my parents is has just gotten hazy and, and faded a bit over the years. I believe this was the first movie I ever saw in a theater, that, that being the original Top Gun. So, um, you know, it stuck with a little guy, I guess, uh, five, six years old. And um, it was just amazing to see the, the first movie. And at that time was pretty technologically advanced, how they captured all the dog fighting and, and all the action. And of course, 36 years later, movie making technology is, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of of what it was when when Maverick and Goose were headed out to Top Gun. And, um, you know, the second movie is just leaps and bounds uh, ahead of the first one. So so I think that was it. There was some nostalgia there. And uh, my friends and I watched the movie over and over and over hundreds of times <laughs> when we were growing up and uh, and into our high school years. And, and you know, I, I met some friends when, when I moved to, to college and then to Washington and they had similar experiences. So it's just one of those things for uh someone my age that you know we grew up with it and we shared it with our friends and and we're just so excited when we all heard that that tom cruise was finally on board to do this and uh in my opinion uh, they didn't disappoint and you know they they did had to wait a couple of years they were nervous about releasing it during the pandemic because of what it meant mean for the for the box office so it stayed on the shelf uh for for a little while with the theatrical delays and except for one thing that sort of came out in the editing process, it holds up very well. The thing that I was thinking of is that uh, Iceman is is in charge of uh, Pacific Command, which is now, as uh, we got caught up in the editing, that's uh, Indo-Pacific Command now. 
but it was changed in the in the interim between the end of production and and the release. But this yeah. this held up fairly well. I think so. Uh, it's funny that they didn't fix that that picture, that sign of uh, the signage under the picture of Admiral Kazansky. Uh, they could have fixed that in post, I, I would think, but uh, maybe maybe they didn't. They didn't realize that the command changed its name. Um, but yeah, I, I think it held up from the time it was delayed uh, due to COVID. Uh, the threat picture hasn't changed that much. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of folks believe the the unnamed adversary um, for which Maverick is is training a team, and I won't give anything away about. Uh, whether he's training the team at the end or not, but um, um, you know, there's a there's a deeply buried uh, nuclear facility that's about to go online for the unnamed adversary. A lot of people think that 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 adversary is China. I, for a, a specific reason, in the theater, thought it was Iran, and uh, and now that this flap over some patches on Maverick's uh, bomber jacket, uh, a lot of people do think it's China. But um, the reason I thought it was Iran, I traveled with former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates years ago. On uh, he was giving a series of budget uh, speeches. They were trying to the Obama administration was trying to trim the Pentagon budget, and uh, they sent uh, Secretary Gates out to uh, to try to sell the public on that. And at a at a happy hour, Gates referred to an Iranian nuclear facility. It's since been reported, it's it's out there, and the U.S. has confirmed for due. And that's what I thought of immediately. So at the end of the movie, when I saw the uh, the black fighter jet with the very Chinese like military symbol on the tail wing, then I realized that I might be wrong. So I think it held up. Whether it's Iran or whether it's China, you know, they're both still. Uh, big threats, big adversaries, uh, both like to uh, to stick it to the U.S. when they can. And th- this is actually a good transition. I mean, it's it's great that movies aren't dead, uh, <laughs> uh, th- that uh, that people can still go to the movies and still have a good time at them, and that we still have movie stars uh, like Tom Cruise, who you know does a good job. But like the the nice transition here, that's all great. And also the uh, Yay Gen X, you know, where we we still have a, a dog in this fight, if you will. But other than that, you're also your background. A lot of your background is is in covering defense matters and in yeah. covering politics, and and technology and and any number of things that we throw at you uh, because you're a talented editor and talented journalist. Uh, but but the defense world is kind of one of your first loves. And after you had seen this, you had you put together uh, an, an item, you know, for your the newsletter that you work on, CQ Senate, about a review that was in the, the financial time sort of poking at this as just like kind of uh, just a nostalgia fest. And, you know, there's, this was a pointless sort of movie and you took issue with that because it, you saw it as a, a fairly accurate reflection, which you started to get into there about where the United States is geopolitically and the vulnerabilities that, are, that are, we have as a country and also that people like, Cruz, you know, uh, is as an aging superstar, and that role he has, like, is, is is how it's reflected there. Let's talk about that, about where you see how the Top Gun Maverick is kind of a this is a a movie for our times as much as Top Gun was in 1986. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the reviewer in the Financial Times, he basically said that this is a movie about 
a declined America, as a, a substantially declined America. He called it a, quote, rather obnoxious kind of blockbuster filled with doubts about the durability of U.S. power and functioning in many ways as a eulogy for relative American decline. Now, um, that's not that's not how I, I interpreted the film. You know, he also said, quote, it is best to not think much about the film's plot, end quote. And as I wrote in my review for CQ Senate, everybody remember to subscribe. The the plot is the movie because the the, the the well Maverick is the movie. Of course, Maverick's the movie. Tom Cruise is is the star of the movie. But it's it's the plot that tests a fifty something year old Maverick. It tests these you know these at the peak of their physical condition, at the peak of their probably at the peak of their naval aviator career. Pilots, after all. Uh, they are all Top Gun graduates. They were called back for this special mission. And the plot does challenge them. In, in fact, uh, the Top Gun uh, school commander, fighter weapon school commander, is played by John Hamm. And and he makes the point over and over to both Maverick and, and the full team that despite America's technological edge, um, that this that this mission may not even be doable for the U.S. Navy, and and you know they may both fail to carry it out, and all four pilots who are eventually assigned may die. They may not come home. So in that way, it did acknowledge that there are more competitors, and and the movie does acknowledge that that these greater number of competitors than in 1986, when the Soviet Union, of course, was really the only peer competitor. China was starting to get its act together, but they had a long way to go, militarily especially. So it acknowledges that that this unnamed adversary, be it Iran or China, has, you know, sophisticated surface to air missiles that if they if the US pilots go above a certain altitude, I think it was 300, 200, 300 feet, could take out an F-18 Super Hornet. So it was very realistic that just the world has changed and other countries have have caught up, so to speak, but that doesn't say America is is declined in any way. Um, you know, it does kind of flick at the Afghanistan and, and Iraq wars, and, and, you know, those didn't go well by any means. And there have been some failures. Maverick may or may not have a failed uh, test flight of some, uh, some futuristic plane in the beginning of the movie. So, you know, it's very realistic that America might be a weakened power, but it's not a completely declined power, and oh, by the way, and I've written this before for CQ Senate and and alluded to it again in my review of Top Gun Maverick, the United States remains the ghostbusters of global security or foreign affairs, global affairs, because maybe we're the champ by default, but we're like the ghostbusters. Who are you going to call when something goes wrong? You know, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, Joe Biden was Peter Vinkman. So he had to, he had to, he had to rally the troops. He had to go, you know, he had to go to the mayor's office at NATO and like in, in the Ghostbusters movie and, and convince the world to get behind, you know, what he wanted to do. And of course, build a coalition. So I just thought the movie was, was acknowledging that the world had changed, but America was still, like I said, the champ by default and only the U S would have the gumption and probably the technical capability to carry out this mission, which I thought was a pretty clever mission that the writers came up with. I think that's a good distinction that you're making about 
you know, we've gone th- from a two superpower world to a one superpower with with some some issues. Uh, you know, like we are the you know the global superpower that's left. We have an ascendant one in China. Uh, we certainly there are certainly a lot of other powers that have nukes. You know, whether it's North Korea or Iran, you know, or India, or Pakistan. Uh, but we still are, as you said, the to go further into the Gen X well of pop culture, <laughs> uh, the, the the Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? Because I don't know if it's so much an empire in decline as much as it's one with just more vulnerabilities in some right. ways. Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the the world changed in part. You know, globalization changed the world. The two thousand eight, two thousand seven, two thousand eight fiscal crisis uh, changed the world. And of course, Iraq and Afghanistan uh, changed the world. And, you know, as a sports radio host that no longer on locally, but as he always used to say, that's on our bill. You know, we can't run from that. It's on the receipt. You know, we America made a lot of mistakes. God, what, two, three administrations from both parties uh, made a lot of mistakes in Iraq and Afghanistan. So it did lessen our sway on, on the global stage. Donald Trump's presidency, also the America first approach. Uh, you know, we all wrote stories when President Biden was elected and then came into office about, you know, his desire. And he ran on this, a desire to re-engage with partners and build coalitions. And you know, that that seemed to work for President Biden uh, in Ukraine, at least in pushing back against Vladimir Putin. Uh, we don't see a lot of that in Top Gun Maverick, though, there's not a lot of coalition building. This is um, this is the U.S. going it alone. Uh, there's not even you know there's no strike group uh, joining. There's no NATO strike group on backup to uh, to help the U.S. pilots if they don't get back to the carrier um, at the end of the movie. And as we see, that has some ramifications. So you know, again, it, it I think it was an actor an accurate picture of where we are now. It Uh, I I think maybe we didn't see some of that coalition stuff. Maybe we didn't see an English pilot or a French pilot in there. uh, And they have some good ones uh, helping out the U.S. Uh, Maybe we would have seen that if if the movie had been, if, you know, they had gone back into production or shot some more scenes or or had the budget to to keep working on it during COVID. But, um, of course, there wasn't a lot of movie making during COVID. Yeah. And I guess, you know, like the thing that I keep coming back to is that whether Top Gun, the original Top Gun is something that means a lot to you, or you think it's just sort of glorified trash, or you look at the, you know, kind of some of the deconstructed uh, interpretations of it about uh, some of the the, the volleyball scenes and so forth, uh, which have always led to uh, uh, particularly Quentin Tarantino getting very uh, animated, <laughs> explaining uh, yes. The, those uh, the, the the gay subtext of the of the of the film, Top Gun. If you want to understand where we were as a country, as a culture in 1986, uh, there are there are a handful of movies you could watch, and that's one of them. Whether whether you like Tony Scott as a as a director, whether you like Tom Cruise as a star, whether you think it's too jingoistic or whatever, it does offer a portal into that time uh, sure. that that's very important, and I. I have a suspicion. I mean, this is only, you know, this movie's only been out, you know, less than two weeks, but I feel like this movie has that potential too, much more so than, you know, the 25th iteration of Batman uh, or, or the latest, you know, uh, movies that pass for, for blockbusters. 
this seems to have something to say, and that's why I wanted to talk to you about it. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it, it does have something to say. It, it 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 also has a lot to say about Maverick himself. Again, he's in his fifties. Uh, he's he's he never comes out and says it, but he's struggling with with basically being alone. Uh, he became something. It's it's implied, and then directly implied, he became a, a surrogate father to Goose's son, um, who is in the movie. Uh, call sign Rooster. He's one of the pilots, and they've had a falling out for very good reasons. But Maverick had his reasons for for what he did that upset Rooster. So. You know, you get a, a sense of an, an aging guy who who never settled down and and has some regrets about that. And he still has not let go. And everyone in the first movie, of course, you have to let him go. You have to let him go. They said about Goose after the uh, the training accident. So he hasn't done that. Now, I don't think anyone. Uh, I guess we can say this now that there are two movies. Uh, none of us who thought about the Top Gun cinematic universe uh, <laughs> expected Maverick had had a smooth go of it. Uh, after they landed on the carrier and and he and ice uh reconciled and and gave each other the the biggest bro hug of the 80s and so he hasn't had a good go of it so i thought that was a, a good arc for his character and i thought they did a nice job of pardon the pun landing that plane at the end of the the second movie uh but also back to your point which is a very good one about a portal into where the culture was and is you know in the first movie of the pilots and the instructors there was one minority and uh, Sundance was one of the radio um, uh, radio officers, the backseat guys like Goose. All the other pilots were white. The instructors were white. In this movie, um, the, the, the 12 uh, pilots that are called back to Top Gun to train for this mission and then be down selected to four. Um, it's very diverse. You know, all races. There's a female pilot. She plays a central role in the movie. Uh, she's very good uh, in in the film, and just the whole cast. The, the 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 first cast was primarily white. This is very different, so it it's definitely there, and you definitely get a sense of um, of where the cultures are. You know, divorce plays a role in this movie. A lot of folks have been through that. Um, uh, Maverick's love interest uh, is divorced and and has a teenage daughter, so Maverick has to navigate those waters, which get choppy. From time to time, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's a deeper movie than the first one, and and I'm glad that that they went there because I think society has coarsened uh, a lot since 1986, and you know this movie, it's not the deepest movie you'll ever see, but it, it does a good job of uh, of advancing Maverick into this modern world. Well, it seemed perfect for political theater, so thanks for thanks for talking about it, and uh, let's. Uh, Let's keep doing these. I don't think I don't know if we're going to get a you know it might might be a while before we get Top Gun three, uh, but we we can certainly do this with uh, with other things. So thank you, John. Thanks. Thanks for having me.